0: Good morning, brothers. Good to be with you in this new year. Love for you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Well, uh, I was doing some work late yesterday afternoon. I really needed to get it done before the end of the workday. And then my phone just started blowing up. Just texts like crazy, emails flying in. Um, Apparently, uh, a legend had retired. And I know some of you in here uh, are long-time Bama fans, and you have enjoyed superiority over all of us. I know you're hurting today. I know it's hard. If you're here today, some of you, maybe some of you are just, they're just not here because they just couldn't make it. The grief is too great, and I understand that. Uh, quite, quite a man and quite a career. Um, you know, as a as a as a Gator fan in particular. Um, yes, there. Thank you. Uh, you know, Coach Saban gave gave I think college football, but certainly Gator football, the the greatest parting gift he could possibly give. Because that day on January second. Uh, um, he, uh, or excuse me, yeah, in the SEC championship game, he, in one game, eliminated both Georgia and Florida State from being in the college football playoffs. And as a Gator fan, that was the best thing that happened this season. So we say thank you, Coach Sabin. What, what a great gift for that. Um, as we begin this new year, I was uh, praying Uh, Tuesday afternoon, praying for our time together, praying for our time here, and one of the things that I became overwhelmed with is just, again, the gratefulness that I have for the faithfulness of men here and the strengthening that that faithfulness brings, and I don't ever want to take that for granted. That's what I kept thinking in my head. Oh, Todd, you say that all the time. Oh, and I'm like, yeah, but Lord, I don't ever want to take that for granted. Please don't ever let me take for granted the opportunity for us to gather here together like this, for us to be encouraged and strengthened. And again, your faithfulness, your faithfulness is the thing that strengthens me and each other in our walk with the Lord, showing up, being present. That's what, it, that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying when he's saying, don't, don't neglect the meeting of together like some are doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. So for us to, to be here, I don't want to take it for granted because I, I meet men and talk to men all the time who are, who are really struggling, but they're struggling alone. And I just keep trying to encourage them. You need to get to a place where you can join with other men, where you can join with other brothers in Christ, and you can walk together because you, you cannot do this alone. We're all struggling. We all face struggles. And we need each other. And we can't uh, we can't do this alone. So thank you. Thank you for the example that many of you have been setting for decades here. Thank you for the example of you younger men who have chosen to, to make this your place of gathering under God's word. Uh, it's encouragement to all of us. It's also a great encouragement to me. We're jumping back into the middle of John chapter 10. We ended in, in December looking at Jesus talking about being the good shepherd. And before I read this scripture, I think there's a few things that... Um, are important for us to understand in our scripture introduction. The first is you're going to hear me read in that very first verse that this is the time of the Feast of Dedication. I think our study of John, we've learned that John just doesn't write that as like, oh, a time marker. It's not simply to let you know a location and a time. Uh, He's also trying to make a statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. So just so we're all clear about the Feast of Dedication uh, was... Or actually, is uh, in 167 BC, so just 160 years before the time of Christ, um, Antioch Epiphanes decided to set up a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, and of course, that was an absolute abomination to the uh, the people, the Jewish people. It was a step too far. They 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 had been uh, under the control of other nations for for millennia, but but having uh, their temple desecrated was for them a step too far. So Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabeans went ahead and, and had a revolt and they actually won back um, that temple mount um, in 164 BC. And they, were, they, went, they declared, the whole country declared a feast of dedication, eight days of dedication for the temple to reclaim their religious place. We know that today as Hanukkah. So this Feast of Dedication, this Feast of Lights, this is the context by which in which we are uh, seeing Jesus act uh, this morning. I also want to note that this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Um, when we get to chapter 11 next week, we're going to begin to see at that point from chapters 11 to chapters 19 the, the days that lead up to the cross. It's unique in John's gospel compared with the synoptic gospels that half of John's gospel just has to do with the days and and week before Jesus went to the cross, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so this is a pivotal point, uh, not just in the moment for the Jewish people and their belief of Jesus, but certainly in John's gospel as as he's writing this. And then... I know this seems like a question that should be silly to us. Is there really more for us to know about Christ? But sometimes I think those of us who've been in Amen Bible study forever, have read the Gospel of John or all the Gospels or walked with Jesus a long time, there's a tendency, we would never say it out loud, but there's a tendency to think, I'm not sure there's much more I need to know about Jesus. I think I know a lot about Christ. And yet there's a reality here, isn't there, brothers? That we will spend our whole lives, and I actually think eternity, learning more and more about Jesus. There's always something more for us to know about Jesus Christ. We have not reached that point. We won't reach that point. So what an opportunity for us. Because that's the theme of our whole study this year. Knowing Christ so what is it today, Lord? Even as, as, as we go to this time and read God's word, what is it today, Lord? What, what One more thing. Teach me one more thing about Jesus. Jesus, reveal one more thing about yourself. Holy Spirit, open my eyes so I can see that. With that thought and that prayer, let me read beginning in uh, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father, Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Very fascinating, powerful passage. Again, this pivotal moment that is both in John's gospel from the public ministry to the personal ministry of Jesus as he goes to the cross, but also a very pivotal moment again for the uh, Jewish people, for those who were there to hear him. And as we look at things this morning, there are two, this passage actually divides itself very nicely up into two, two sections. One has to do with Jesus being Messiah. The other has to do with Jesus being the Son of God. And the way I want to look at it this morning is, first of all, to see this Jesus as he comes to the Jewish people, as he comes into the world, as he comes to us, as a Jesus beyond a Messiah of our making. Jesus being beyond a a Messiah of our making. The Jewish idea of a Messiah was both political and militaristic. What they were looking for, what they imagined from the Old Testament, that God was going to send someone who would be a savior like Joshua, like Moses. They thought he might be a prophet or maybe even an angel. But nowhere in their minds did they imagine the son of God, the incarnate Yahweh himself. That wasn't in their heads. And they had a desire. They had certain felt needs. Their felt need was, hey, listen, we don't like the way things are right now. We don't like that we're being oppressed by the Roman Empire. We were once a great people. And we want a Messiah who is going to make Israel great again, like it was under David, like it was under Solomon. That's what we want. And so they became frustrated, both with the fact that that Jesus wasn't getting on with whatever they needed, and also that, that they weren't sure with what he was about anyways. That's what they're experiencing. What about us? I know we know who Jesus Christ is, and I know we know a lot of the spiritual things about Christ, but I do find us, I find myself sometimes, Petitioning the, 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 the Savior mostly for things that have to do with this earth. So, uh, you know, we find ourselves, uh, yes, I need, a, I need a Messiah who's going to deal with, with our health. <laughs> I, need, I need him to, to save me from my, my health problems. Or I need a Messiah who is going to give me physical safety. Or a Messiah who is going to give me political safety or financial safety or religious safety. I want to be able to to worship God in absolute freedom. This is what I want Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, to do. That's That's what I need to happen. And oftentimes we're not asking ourselves what does Jesus want to happen? What does the Messiah want to do? Is it, and those things, I'm not saying you don't pray for those things, but is that the center of what we're seeking Jesus to do? Take care of our health, give us physical safety, financial safety, political safety, religious safety. Is that the center? What does Jesus want to bring us? What does he want to bring us as Messiah? So how does Jesus come to these people these Jewish people at that time. How does he come to us? What can we learn from this? First of all, in verse 24, I think we see he comes as one uncontrolled by our demands. Verse 24, they they say to him, tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And there is both an irritation in this question and also a desire to like nail him down. It's interesting to note that... Um, Jesus publicly, he never publicly stated that he is the Messiah. You won't find that in the Gospel of John. I think in any of the Gospels that publicly Jesus would st- say, I am the Messiah. The reason is that their view of a Messiah, they would have immediately applied to Jesus. And that's, Jesus wasn't interested in their public opinion of what a Savior should be. And so he never makes that statement publicly because he knows it's going to be misinterpreted when he does that. And he's not interested in being defined by our public opinion. And Jesus' messiahship at this point, and even at this point right now, brothers, is primarily spiritual. There will be a time when he will come and will rule all the realms of the world in a way that is very visible, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be that. But right now, the Messiahship of Jesus is a primarily a, of a spiritual nature. And safety often means something very different to Jesus than it does to us. Safety for our children or our grandchildren often means something very different than it means to us. I've struggled with this my whole life. Just this last year in my prayer journal, there's this one page that I wrote. The Lord will bring us home safely. But home and safe means something different to him than it often means to me. The Lord will bring us home safely, but home and safe often means something different to Jesus than it means to me. Jesus is not going to be controlled by our demands. Secondly, Jesus is uncontained by our minds. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus answered that, I told you and you do not believe. And then he goes on to talk about the works. He says, listen, I've told you and I've showed you And you did not believe. I know sometimes we look at our uh, New Testaments and we, particularly the Gospels, and we're thinking to ourselves, "How did they not get it? Jesus is right there. Certainly, certainly, if we were there, we would get it." We would see Jesus. We'd we'd make the connections to the Old Testament. We'd see the miracles. If you see the miracles, you've got to get it, right? How do they not get it? Well, we know from our Bibles that the reason we don't get it on our own is because our minds are darkened by sin, that we're born into sin, and that we can't reason ourselves to salvation. Because in order to reason ourselves to salvation, we would have to contain God himself, certainly Christ, within the confines of our own human minds. But wouldn't it make sense, doesn't it make sense, that there's no way, there's no way a God who is really God could be contained in our own minds. As my, one of my Bible professors often said, um, we could apprehend God, but we can't comprehend God. You can... You can touch him, but you can't put your arms completely around him. He cannot be contained in our minds. And so here, these darkened minds, and certainly for all of us before we came to know Christ, we can't just reason. We can't, you can't just explain it logically, not because, not because Jesus doesn't exist in the, confine, in, in the, uh, in, in the reality of reason, but because it can't fit in in our own minds of logic and reason. It's too big for that. He's too big for that. And so the faith that it takes for us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is not a blind faith, but it's certainly something beyond our ability to reason. And it is actually only when the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds that we are then able to turn around and go, Oh, oh. Now I see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now I understand what it's saying here in this gospel. It's not something we can see until the Holy Spirit dwells in us, until the Holy Spirit regenerates our own hearts and minds that we begin to understand and and apprehend Christ because our brains could never comprehend Christ. This Messiah is uncontained by our minds, Number uh, letter C is unlimited in power. This is such a wonderful description. These two verses, in fact, I bet for most of us, these two verses are the verses that stand out to us most in this passage. Verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Such wonderful description of Christ's relationship to his people that his action is a calling. Because again, we would not have never reached out to him. We couldn't have reasoned our way to Jesus Christ. His action is a calling to us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he reaches out to us. And then he enables us to follow him. So there's a calling and there's a following. And then the gifts that he gives us, he gives us eternal life. And he gives us eternal security. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. I love those verses. I've loved them since I was a young boy, actually, um, growing up in a Christian home. But like many of you, I grew up up in a Christian tradition that really struggled with this whole sovereignty of God thing, especially in salvation. We won't name who we are, (laughs) but we know who we are where our theology taught us that, well, there can't be predestination. That just sounds messed up. (laughs) I remember even being um, in high school, went to a a, a private Christian school, and we were going through Romans, and I would argue like crazy with my Bible teacher about this. It just drove me nuts, this whole idea that... uh, God had chosen me before the foundation of the world, that, that it was God who did it, that I, you know, that there wasn't a quote-unquote quote free will. I mean, it drove me crazy. So I was determined to prove him wrong. Couldn't possibly be right about this. Of course, I kept getting stumped by the fact that the things he was saying were actually quotes from Scripture. You know, like Ephesians says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. And also my frustration is this. Maybe it was yours for some of you. I can't really claim these verses as being beautiful if I don't believe in God's sovereignty in salvation. In other words, if I had any part in my salvation, if any part of it depended upon me, then that would mean I can fall out of it. If any part of my relationship with Jesus and in salvation depends upon me, dependent upon my choice, dependent upon my decision. If at any place it depended upon me, then that place becomes an Achilles' heel in my salvation, a place where it could fall apart. So, this idea of eternal security is beautiful, but it has to be coupled with God's sovereignty in salvation. You can't separate these two things. And finally, um, I just realized, you know what? That's what it says in the Bible. (laughs) I can't comprehend it all. I can't explain it all. It's just what's there. And I got to embrace it. And you know what? On the other side of that, it sure is beautiful. It sure is beautiful to know that this is a truth. And it's not something I have to question. Can I contain it in my mind? No. This power, this unlimited power is absolutely beautiful. When you think about it, think about this, brothers. Christ's power with God has the ability to overcome anything that threatens your salvation. Any struggle with sin that threatens your salvation. Any struggle with brokenness that threatens your salvation. Any challenge by Satan and temptation into your life any struggles with addiction, any, anything, God's going to finish the work that he started in you. He's going to finish it. I know I, I, I used to not believe this, but now as I'm getting older, I get it. I've had men in their 70s and 80s they've said, I'm finding it harder to deal with temptation now in my life than I ever have before. I feel like the attack is even greater. And as a young man, I was like, well, shoot. (laughs) I kind of thought and hoped things would get easier (laughs) when I got older, when it came to the whole temptation thing. Isn't it great to know whether you're 25 or 85, that the power of Christ is going to get you home? The power of Christ can overcome anything in your life. Anything, any attack of Satan. Unlimited power. And then, of course, unequivocal identity. There's no doubt what Jesus was saying here. (laughs) He's saying here in these verses at the very end, my Father's mission and my mission are exactly the same. We have the exact same. Yahweh, who you worship, the I am, And myself, we have the exact same mission. And because we have the exact same mission, that would therefore mean we have the exact same essence that we are, as he'll say later, one. Jesus was very clear about that. And John's main point in his gospel everywhere is that Jesus is clear about being God. John wants to make that point clear. Jesus himself was very clear Insane saying that he was God. He was not a prophet. He was clear about that. He was clear about saying I'm not an angel. And I'm not another God. I'm not putting myself up as a God next to God. Jesus was very clear according to John's gospel. Of saying this. Of seeking to make this clear. You know, when you think about all those things, uncontrolled by our demands, uncontained by our minds, unlimited in power, unequivocal in identity, I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it, only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. Only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. No human would ever come up with this Messiah. Every attempt by any of us to define Christ in our own words, in our own terms... Any attempt by the world to put some kind of description on it falls way short because even in our attempted imaginations, we could never come to this place. Only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. Of course, the Jewish people, they got what Jesus was saying. (laughs) That's one of those things in in apologetics. If you ever meet a friend who's saying, well, you know, I just think Jesus is a great teacher and he has great stuff to say and... You know, I, certainly he's probably the greatest man that ever walked the earth. This is one of the places you can turn to and say, well, this is a problem with your, your, your conclusion about Jesus. Because number one, Jesus himself claimed to be God. Well, your friend says, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's what the writers of the gospel said. Well, no, actually look and notice that the Jews understood Jesus was claiming to be God. They were upset with him. They they did not miss. They were not unclear about what Jesus was saying at all. They got the understanding of what he was saying. They did not believe in who he was. Jesus is greater than the god we can imagine. In our wildest Dreams. If we were thinking more positively, we wouldn't have come to this because only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. First of all, look at verse 36. It says, consecrated by the Father. This is a word that would, would I, I would have skipped over. Maybe you skipped over. Um, until I begin to understand the context when, when John puts it, says, at the time of the feast of dedication. And then he says here, Jesus says, consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. Consecrated means set apart. It means dedicated. <laughs> so John's making it clear here by connecting it to the feast of dedication. In fact, in John's gospel, you're going to find that John is pointing out that Jesus fulfills every feast, every religious feast that existed in here. This is just a political one. But here at the the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, John is saying, Jesus said, I'm consecrated. I'm the the dedicated one. So right then, as they're taking eight days to celebrate and set apart, dedicate the temple for special worship, Jesus is making clear again, I am the temple. I am the place where you meet God. I am the place It's in me, not in this building, that you are going to meet with God. Notice, too, that they, they say, it's interesting, they say you've made yourself out to be a God. You make yourself God. You, being a man, make yourself God. Verse 33, well, he doesn't. He doesn't make himself to be God. He's been declared God. That's what he's saying by consecrated by the Father. And that's what happened at his baptism. It's God the Father who said, behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. So it's not Jesus making himself out to be God. It's God the Father himself declaring that he is the Son of God, consecrated by the Father. So certainly we, well, we'll get to that. Hold on. (laughs) The second thing I want us to see in this, I want us to see Jesus, this incarnate person of the Trinity, The Jews were monotheistic compared with the polytheistic people around them. The Jews at that time only thought of Yahweh as as one God, one person. And that was in contrast to the polytheistic religions around them who thought of many different different gods. And uh, as they were talking with Jesus, they couldn't grasp this idea of a son of God, because their idea of Yahweh was one person, one God. And Jesus was trying to let them know, no, let me tell you who God really is. Let me reveal to you who Yahweh really is. And that's what that's part of what Christ came to do. Certainly the ultimate thing he came to do is to bring salvation to us as sinners, to redeem his people. In doing so, he revealed the heart of God. He revealed who God was, not... One God, one person, but one God, three persons. Three distinct persons, as we know from our theology. So Jesus is a distinct person of the Trinity, but he is the word made flesh. Again, this is something way beyond our imaginations. We couldn't have come up with a God like this. No one on earth could have come up with a God like this and even those of us who grew up in the church and understand the truth of the trinity it always stretches our minds doesn't it i always think it's um humorous unless i'm the one that's being the assigned the topic but when you when you get the children's message assignment and the assignment is trinity and you're like okay you know so you're up there with like an egg and you're talking about the shell and the yolk and the and, and you're like that's not working Or you're going to use ice water and steam and and they I mean, we have a hard time talking to adults about what the Trinity is. How in the world are you talking to a five-year-old about what the Trinity is? But again, if I'm not the one giving the message, it's always fun to watch somebody squirm. You know, watch James try to figure, or Philip try to figure out how he's going to share these five-year-olds, what the Trinity is. It's way beyond our imagination. Again, we can't comprehend it. We can only apprehend it. We can only see parts of it. But here, because God has loved us so much to reveal himself to his people, he is the word made flesh. So we could see him, this distinct incarnate person of the Trinity. And and then even thinking about how, how his connection to our humanity, how his taking on human flesh, and yet while still being fully god how that connection again you, we couldn 't have put that in our imagination we couldn 't have written that this is This is a God well beyond our wildest dreams that that he is God and hasn 't lost power, but that he would connect with us, and so even through the first century of the early church, um, there were so many there was so much that tried to pin down. Jesus and his deity and his humanity. In fact, this passage in particular was one that was used to try to figure out and sometimes in, in trying to comprehend this, you just had men and women who just went off in, in, in wrong theology because they so desperately wanted to contain it in their minds. Brothers, don't worry about it being contained in your mind. Instead, see it, believe it, and know that because Christ has come, you you can touch it, though you may not grasp everything about it. Again, we will be learning about this our whole lives. But notice that this theology, this deep theology, some of you would love if I just went off right now and we just studied some deep theology on the person of Christ. Some of you would say, I'm gonna go to sleep if you do that. But whatever you feel about theology, don't miss how beautiful it is in verses uh, 28 and 30 on the previous page, or that's the previous page of my Bible, previous section, 28 and 30, that when Jesus talks about being one with the Father, his being united with the Father, notice how that theology is connected to his relationship to us. You see that? He says... These are my sheep, no one can, this is 28, 28, 29, 30, or 27, 28, and 29. These are my sheep, I call them by name, they follow me, I give them eternal life, no one will snatch them out of my hand, my father has given them to me, no one will snatch them out of his hand. My Father and I are one. Notice that's the theology. That's the theology of, of God being, a, uh, Jesus being a distinct person of the Trinity and yet being God himself, being the incarnate one and yet being God himself. But notice how John connects it to its relationship to us. And let me say, brothers, any theology you ever study is, always has implications for us. It's always connected to us. It's not just something that's just out there. It's something that can impact our lives. So anytime you see that in Scripture, don't don't move away from it. Anytime you have the opportunity to study some aspect of theology, don't run away from it. Realize that it's going to expand your understanding of God's relationship to you in a way that that is going to be personal. It's really going to be personal. He's a consecrated by the Father. He's incarnate person of the Trinity. And finally, He is one with the Father. Verse 37 and 38 So a distinct person of the Trinity but one with the Father. And see only a triune God only a God who is one yet three persons could be a God who can be a Father to all of us who can be united to us in Christ in the incarnation united to us and be a God who dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. There's There's nothing like it. Think about that. That God has revealed Himself to be a God, one God who can be Father to us. And for those of us in this room, for those of you in this room who didn't really have a Father who was present or didn't have a spiritual Father who was present, what a blessing. He can be Father. He is also united to us in Christ. The union with Christ that we have, again, one of those great mysteries that's way outside our minds. We can't comprehend it, but we can apprehend it. You are united with Christ. The incarnate one who was made flesh. When we get to heaven and see Jesus, he is still the incarnate one. He didn't give up that connection. That's why in Revelation, when John sees the one who can open the scroll, remember, he says, I was looking for this great, Thing. And what I saw was a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Thomas himself touched the scars on the glorified Christ. He's still connected to us. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus, that same Spirit dwells in all of us. There's not two Holy Spirits. There's not a million Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that descended on Christ Dwells in your heart. There's one God. And we would never know to make this stuff up. <laughs> We'd never know how to do it. And this is how Jesus comes to us. You know, the, the dearest friendships I know, the dearest marriages I know, people that I look at that just have deep friendships that they've had for decades, husband and wife who just have deep relationship with each other over decades. You know one of the common denominators of those relationships is that, is that both people in those relationships always believe that there's something else to know about that person. The deepest friendships and the deepest marriages have in common the belief by both people that there's always something more I can learn about her. There's always something more to know about Him. And in believing that, they're always seeking that. There's, there's not a, there's not a, ah, uh, I'm bored with this. Because they don't think that it could ever be bored with it. So for us in our relationship with Christ, believe and know there is always something more, something more tomorrow, something more the next day, something more the day after that that you and I can know about Jesus. Something more that we can understand about the Holy Spirit, something more that we can understand about God as Father. We can spend our whole lives giving ourselves to it every day and we could never exhaust it. Relationship will just grow and grow. Don't get bored with Jesus. As we move into this year together, studying the Gospel of John, moving into his final days before the cross, let's pray together that the Lord just opens our eyes to see things about Christ, to know things we never knew before. You pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of these men. Thank you, Lord, for the Bibles that we have in front of us that are such a blessing to have in our hands. So many in this world would long to be able to hold the Bible in their hand and have it for their own. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to study verse by verse your precious word. And thank you most for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. Lord, it's not the teaching. It's not even our own wisdom or knowledge or experience. But it is your Holy Spirit that reveals your word to us. So I pray, Father, that you would take the word this morning. And you, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, would open our eyes. That we might know Christ. Father, we pray this all. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks, brothers.